I would say it's sort of a difficult film to recommend. You have to be careful how you recommend it or what you say about it. And, you know, I remember I, when I watched it with an audience, a movie theater audience, <laughs> a woman at the end of it said to her friend, she said, well, that was something, <laughs> you know, it's just, so like, I think they were looking for like an evening's light entertainment. And this is not going to fit that particular bill. So, so just keep that in mind. Hello, and welcome to At The Movies with Mike and Marie, a show where two film professors talk about movies. I'm Marie Westhaver. And I'm Mike Giuliano. And today we're going to talk about The Whale and Whitney Houston, I Want to Dance with Somebody. Now, these are both movies that came out at the end of the year in this mad race to get to the Oscars. So starting with The Whale, Mike, this is a movie that was based on a play, which I don't necessarily think is a bad thing. But I was very aware while watching this how much it felt like a very claustrophobic, hemmed in space. I think that kind of worked in its favor. But Mike, what did you think? The operative word is claustrophobia. This is based on a play by Samuel D. Hunter, who also wrote the screenplay. It was an off-Broadway play in 2012. I saw it actually at Howard Community College when Rep Stage gave it a very strong production in 2015. And I like it as a play. I think it works really well. And of course, it didn't hurt that we had such a strong local production for it. The gist of it is there is an extremely heavy man who's so heavy, he's essentially housebound. He just, he's like weighs 500 pounds, doesn't go out, isolated from the world. He's a college teacher but he's teaching remotely and it's not pandemic related whatsoever, but he wants to be able to teach so his students are remote and they don't have to even see him. He'll make excuses, all oh, my camera's broken, whatever, you know, they're not gonna see him because he's embarrassed that way. And, you know, it really very much follows the personal issues he's having with family and friends and so on. On stage, it's kind of a natural in the sense that it's not unusual to have a single set play everything's in this guy's living room, basically. And the visitors come and go. So it's a bit of a relief every time the door opens, oh, somebody, like breath of fresh air, somebody's coming into the house. And so that, you know, on stage, that claustrophobia is not an issue per se. It's a funny thing to talk about, Marie, because in movies that does become an issue, you know, should you open up the theatrical material? But And I think Sam Hunter, the screenwriter in this case, and the director, Darren Aronofsky, made the right choice not to open it up. Occasionally, you'll have him out on his front step just because the pizza delivery guy is there or, you know, just that or a look through the window to the outside world. But I think you need to keep it enclosed for reasons we'll talk about some more. But where it's funny to talk about is watching a movie. It's not as easy to take that in, to stay with it when you're watching a movie. And Maria, I wanted to share that with you. Didn't you feel at times like even though thematically it's justified to keep it closed in and claustrophobic? It's a heavy, uh, I, I'm sorry for the bad puns here, but it's, it's, it's thematically heavy. It's also a heavy sit, as I call it. By that, I mean, it's a bit excruciating to watch this for almost two hours in a theater, partly because of the personal issues that get dragged out. And it is heavy handed thematically as, as it treats them. But just simply in terms of a viewing experience, it, you know, when you go to the movies, I'm sorry, you typically want to get out into the street once in a while or, or you, know, you know, see the sky or something. Let me ask you about this very directly, because it's a funny sort of thing that way, that if I'm in a theater, I'm not bothered by that. But when I'm watching a movie, I can think of exceptions. But for the most part, you want it to open up like, you know, like, like 12 Angry Men, something like that needs to be claustrophobic. You need to stay in that room. And it's a brilliant film. So that can work completely. But there are other cases where I feel like you've got to somehow don't just put somebody in a car and have them take a drive, you know, but something to open it up. What do you think? Yeah, I, I think, though, that that 
rising sense you have of wanting to bust out of that room is part of what makes it work. You know, you know, going into it that they're going to bring up tough situations and they do. I couldn't help but be struck by the idea that, you know, as college professors, Mike, we have been trapped in our homes for a while doing online classes. So that in particular felt very real to me. And, you know, at some point we need to address the backlash that this movie got for, first of all, putting Brendan Fraser in a fat suit rather than employ somebody who was genuinely that heavy, who was an actor. And then the portrayal of heavy people. And what struck me the most watching it, because I went in there thinking, you know, I don't want to be disrespectful of people or, you know, you know noticing my feelings and, and thoughts you know, I lost almost 70 pounds during the pandemic while teaching online like this, this uh, character. So I don't know, some of the things that came up really resonated with me as uh, him representing, I don't know, heavy people teaching online. I mean, not completely, uh, but there were just moments that I thought he really got right. But Mike, in terms of that whole controversy, you know, where do you well, stand you know, we're, we're talking about it in 2023. It's important to remember that this as a play came out more than a decade ago. So that we see it through the lens of the pandemic in terms of being isolated, teaching online and all that. And that's how can we watch it otherwise? I know what you're saying. But, you know, when I went to see it, you know, at Rep Stage in 2015, that was not on my mind at, at the time. And this is where we have to actually delve then directly with the biography of this particular man. OK, the, the Charlie's the name of the character. The reason he's so heavy here, it's actually self-induced in this case, because he had a gay lover who committed suicide. And he was so depressed over that that he just started eating. And that's not unusual. I mean, this, you're depressed and compulsive eating, whatever. And he just kept going. And the movie is deliberately, when I say distorted, I mean extreme that way, that he just really to the point where, and I mean, like when we talk about morbid obesity, so like 500 pounds, where you almost can't fit through the door, you can't, you can't leave the house, he's housebound. It's a health risk. I mean, and in fact, when we see him, he's not only housebound, he's essentially chairbound in a lot of ways. He has great difficulty getting around. One of his visitors actually is his caretaker, somebody who as a nurse, you know, essentially helps to get him through the day. And so that's a somewhat different dynamic than, than what we're talking about here. So in his case, he's so incredibly depressed because of losing his lover and now how heavy he is and embarrassed and, and just in pain, really, that it's in that re respect, it's a different scenario. Now, to your essential point, should there have been a heavy set actor playing the heavy set character? We could argue for hours back and forth and one like that. But, you know, the thing about actors is, and I, I say this all the time, you know, the challenge for an actor oftentimes is not to play what you are, but what you aren't. And so it's not at all unusual to have prosthetics or anything else. Like when we were talking, you know, about other recent movies like Avatar, you mentioned, should you look for a blue actor? Well, no, I mean, you can put blue on the actor, right? So, so you know, th think about all the ways in which actors are transformed that way. What I did admire here, and this is on a technical level, so put aside the polemics of whether you should do this or not, but the fact that Brendan Fraser was so thoroughly transformed, the prosthetics, the whole, the whole performance was so plausible, so believable. I could see in his face that it was Brendan Fraser, right? But otherwise, I totally believed that he was Charlie. I didn't feel like it was well, when you said a man in a fat suit. Well, yes, that's essentially what you're doing, but I never felt that way watching it. I really believed in, in the corpulence, if you will. And, and I, I thought that's a real. So in terms of Oscar nominations, Brendan Fraser will get one for actor. 
for sure. But I think also at the level of like, well, makeup, costuming, I mean, you know, it's really expertly done here. What's your basic feeling about this since we're getting into the polemics of it as well? I mean, did you have a, a problem with it yourself? I know, I know the debate came up, but did you feel that way at all watching it, that they should, they should have gotten a different actor? I did not. And part of it is what you're saying. You know, part of acting is being somebody that you're not, not representing who you really are. And what I thought, well, I, I mean, I love Brendan Fraser anyway. And I went back and watched a bunch of his movies I hadn't seen. And, you know, he always plays like the lovable lunk, you know, the big lunk, maybe not too smart, but just with a good heart. And he brings that Brendan Fraser, you know, energy to this role. But he also gives you the sense of all heavy people are somebody in a fat suit. There is something about that that kind of works as a metaphor. And he even invokes the idea of Moby Dick, how, you know, if I could just kill the whale, meaning if I could just bust out of this fat suit, uh, my life would be completely different. And I, and I thought that that metaphor worked really well in terms of titling the movie and the struggle within. Mike, what did you think about that? Well, with, without spoiling this specific biographical reason for the metaphor there, on the surface, what it involves is the fact that he's grading student papers, and there's a student essay about Moby Dick, and, and so that sets up the metaphor. But and I, when I say I don't want to spoil it in terms of like, like who wrote that essay and what, you know, the, the underpinnings for it, you discover that as you're watching the, the, the film. But, you know, metaphorically, obviously, Sam Hunter realized, well, that's, you know, the operating metaphor. It's the title of the play and now the, now the movie. And, and it actually does work on that level. And, and it's a reminder that, you know, this guy is an academic. I mean, he, you know, he teaches college English. And so he thinks along those lines. And so, you know, he's taking his personal situation, his personal plight, if you will, and providing a literary metaphor. Um, so for us as academics, that's that's par for the course, right? Or courses. We all do things like that. But where I think, and this is a funny thing, I, I, I reviewed the play when I was at Rep Stage, and I really liked the production, as I said earlier, and I think it's a, you know, essentially a good play. I didn't like it as much as a film. And I'm wondering if, if that's something about my response or something about the transposing it to the screen. But even though there was some what I call thematic heaviness when it's on stage, you know, like every visitor, there, there's the caretaker, there's a, a missionary coming in, they're intertwined lives. It, it really hammers home the points about he needs to mend his broken relationships. It's just relentless and, and kind of heavy handed with a lot of that. I noticed that on stage and wasn't bothered particularly. It was cohesive for me. In the film, it sometimes seemed almost overbearing. It just seemed like sometimes like really like sort of like on the nose scripting. And I, I you know, I'm questioning my own responses because I liked it so much as a play, but not as much as a screenplay. Maybe it's because, again, the claustrophobia in a cinematic sense that I found myself thinking about the Moby Dick, you know, analogies and, and, and all that and thinking, goodness sakes, we could use some nuance here, just like we could use some fresh air. We could use a little bit of nuance or something to leaven it a bit. It just sort of hammers home those points relentlessly. Like, Marie, every time the door opens, like, oh, that missionary's back again. And, and, and I knew exactly why those characters appeared, but it's just like, I get it, I get it, I get it. <laughs> you know, enough already, please, you know, let it just be the pizza guy because all he's doing is delivering a pizza, you know? Everyone else is delivering a heavy message. <laughs> what do you think? Yes, I agree with everything that you said but I have not seen the play. So I walked into it only understanding the controversy over whether Brendan Fraser should have gotten the role as opposed to somebody heavier and, and how, you know, perhaps it was unseemly for people to 
look at the plight of the morbidly obese as entertainment. But when I went into it, I really felt like it was just this Brendan Fraser vehicle. He was just always so present that there were moments you forgot about the size of him and you saw the character he was supposed to be, which I think is very tricky. Well, you know, the thing about Brendan Fraser's performances, it's incredibly subtle. It's really nuanced. When you look at his face, how much he's able to convey that way. And so in terms of the controversy that Marie refers to, you know, in terms of the casting, we've talked about that. But in terms of whether how the film uh, deals with this, it's never making fun of him. I mean, it's, there aren't the quote unquote fat jokes or anything. It's actually remarkably sympathetic. And if anything, it's depressing because these are literally life and death issues for him. He has trouble breathing and walking. You know, his life could end at any moment. His personal life's a complete mess. The film is really simpatico that way. And so, you know, uh, the weight is an issue because it has to be an issue there. But it's it's not at all in a kind of demeaning or, you know, pejorative sense whatsoever. It's not making fun of this. It's empathetic. I mean, wouldn't you agree with that, Marie, that it's really, you know, very much about his situation and that's what his situation is? Yeah, there were two things that I thought the character did that I thought were very important in terms of creating audience sympathy because they were not positive things. One was the way he apologized all the time. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And his friend keeps telling him, stop apologizing. But he can't help himself. That to me was just, it was such a real thing. He knows that what he does affects other people. And he is sorry. So he keeps apologizing. The other thing is how you knew everybody in the audience had the same thought every time people were bringing him food. Now, of course, the pizza guy can't see him, but his friend is bringing him not just one sub, but two subs. And she's actually there when he chokes on one because he's eating it so fast. And so you're thinking, wow, I mean, I understand that as a friend, you know how hard it is for him to go out and shop and be looked at and all, you know, uh, just the physicality of trying to do it yourself would just be daunting. And there's also, you know, when you realize that you can get two pizzas delivered, look, if you're not going to do it, you'll get it anyway. But there's a sense of, couldn't you just have brought one sub? And of course, this is just sort of this underlying thing that's going on that isn't discussed, but you can't help but feel it when you're watching it. So I think that's one of the strongest aspects of the play, namely that you have a character like Liz, she's the caretaker, and and her backstory is explained within the material, so you can discover that as you watch it, but she's the visitor most regularly. And she is a caretaker, but she's also an enabler. And this is not at all unusual. I mean, she should have the tough love advice, almost like a nurse would have, do this, don't do that. And she does to some extent, but yes, you're right, Marie, she also brings the the extra portions, if you will. She's also sort of feeding him quite literally that way. And I think psychologically that rang true for me. It seemed to me that she really cares about him because she cares for him. She knows that he does want the second sub and she's going to provide that. So, you know, I, I thought that was rather compelling, actually. Like, well, what should she do, right? What could she do in a situation like this? So I like that aspect of it. The other thing that comes up, you know, watching the film is that he has damaged his relationship with his daughter having left the marriage for the man who has committed suicide, who's plunged him into this despair that has, you know, made him eat himself to death. And so you get to meet the daughter who's obviously angry and very resentful. That's also a very uncomfortable character to watch. Very well done. I think this could be another supporting actress nominee. Mike, what did you think about that character and the performance? 
you've used the operative words here, claustrophobia and uncomfortable. And, and even though there are things that we can respect about this film and admire in a way, it's difficult to watch at times. And, and, and you know, it's psychologically, it's troubling in all sorts of ways. So I would say it's sort of a difficult film to recommend. You have to be careful how you recommend it or what you say about it. And, you know, I remember I, when I watched it with an audience, a movie theater audience, <laughs> a woman at the end of it said to her friend, she said, well, that was something, <laughs> you know, just, so like I think they were looking for like an evening's light entertainment. And this is not going to fit that particular bill. So so just keep that in mind. And I guess the other advice is, you know, after you see a movie like this, should you go out to eat afterwards? <laughs> Maybe get a salad. <laughs> I'll get a salad. Just a salad for me. Two subs for my friend, but just a salad for me. And please. a Diet Coke. Uh, yes, now, definitely. I have to say, when I saw this, the theater was full, full. And there was a woman who was sobbing at the end, just absolutely inconsolably. So... I think this may bring up a lot of issues for people who go to the movie. It does. But I do think Brendan Fraser, he's certainly got a real shot at best actor for this. Because you know, another thing that the Academy loves is when an actor goes through a physical transformation, you know, like Charlize Theron, you know, turning herself into a serial killer or, you know, Christian Bale losing a whole lot of weight to play the machinist. You know what? When I was heading in to watch this movie, I had that cynical thought. Namely, this film is Oscar bait. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I was sorry. I was angry at myself for having because it's a really serious film and it should be respected on all sorts of levels. But I had that thought. I thought, you know what? The, the remarkable physical transformations, you know, that's almost an automatic Oscar nomination right there. Right there. He, he, and, he, and he deserves it. You know, I mean, he, that's what he really deserves it. But I still had that thought. Me too. Me too. All right, so let's move on to Whitney Houston. I want to dance with somebody. Now, I have to say, as soon as I saw the previews for this, I couldn't wait because I loved Whitney Houston and I loved, I had her albums and the, you know, when she did the Super Bowl performance where she sang the national anthem, I must have, I've seen that before this movie probably a hundred times. So I went in as a fan and I was lucky enough, although I usually would not say this, to be seated, you know, I always sit, you know, in the back row on the end where I can't bother anybody. And I happened to be sitting a few seats away from a whole group of women who'd gone to the movie together. And their comments were just gold. But we all enjoyed the movie just as a way to kind of get back the past, get a chance to hear our favorite Whitney Houston songs. And for them to talk back at the screen at all the people who did her wrong. How was your experience of this movie, Mike? I found it really entertaining. I enjoyed it so much. And even though, you know, yes, it, yes, it runs over two hours, but I didn't mind that whatsoever. One reason being that we got to hear songs in their entirety. One of the concerns you have with the film, like this is going to chop them up. You'll get just a moment of it. And then, oh, no, don't cut. You know, cut. we really get them. Now, what's really remarkable here is that the actress playing Whitney Houston, Naomi Aki, does not resemble her physically. And yet watching the film, it's not an issue. She's mm -hmm. totally persuasive. Moreover, she's not from New Jersey. She's British. And yet this British actress totally, you know, has the right voice and right look, if you will, the right personality. She's totally convincing. Speaking of totally convincing, almost all the music you hear in the film is actually Whitney Houston. So it's dubbed, okay, post-sync. 
And yet when they were filming it, Naomi Aki, the actress, she was singing as they filmed it. And then of course they just dubbed on top of that. It is completely convincing. They should give an Oscar just for that. I watched it closely. There were only a few moments where I felt like the lips weren't quite matching the words, but for the most part, absolutely spot on. It was perfect. And I thought, boy, somebody deserves a lot of recognition for how closely synced that is. It was really, really fun to watch. Why was it so enjoyable to watch? Because it's a tragic life in a lot of ways. Well, that's why it's enjoyable, ironically, that it, when you think about the life of Whitney Houston, I mean, you know, when she, you know, destroyed her voice, you know, with drugs and drinking and so on. And in fact, Clive Davis, you know, who made her as a producer, he said, you know, why are you doing this to yourself? It's like, like leaving a Stradivarius out in the rain, you know? And then when Whitney Houston actually dies, I mean, it's a drug-related drowning in a bathtub and, you know, on the night when she used to give a performance and just, you know, it's just remarkably melodramatic. She's only 48 when she dies in 2012. I mean, all this is heartbreaking material, but you know what, for a musical biopic, it's perfect material, isn't it? And, and I'm not saying that in, in, a, in a really exploitative or cynical way. It's just for a musical biopic, there's a lot to work with here in terms of the characters in her life, in terms of what she does to herself and so on. And I like the fact that the film, you know, Maria, I usually complain about films being too conventional, I actually like the fact that this film is a conventional musical biopic because that's the entertainment value here. It's, it's a, a remarkably melodramatic life. It's just full of great music and great heartbreak and great a lot of this and that. It's really compelling that way. And I like the fact that it runs a little long because you get all that music built in and it's just really enjoyable to watch this film. I just had so much, so much entertainment value here. And Marie, to your point, yes, there's the obvious nostalgia value. It does take us back to when those songs first came out and how well they hold up, don't they? Those are power ballads that always get to you. You know, if you cried the first time you heard it, you still get choked up when you hear it now. Yes, and entertainment value is what this movie is all about. There were moments that were really nice to witness, like when they contact her to see if she wants to, you know, do the national anthem at the Super Bowl. And she and everybody around her like, wait, you mean the Super Bowl Super Bowl? The Super Bowl? The Super <laughs> That Super Bowl? That was a nice moment. There was also a nice moment because you're asking yourself while you're watching it, what would a woman this powerful, beautiful, talented want with Bobby Brown? And you find out that answer that he was famous too. And he was the only person that she did not have to be Whitney Houston all the time with. So there's this maybe false sense of seeing behind the curtain, you know, what motivates people, why you would make these choices. They do not show her using a lot of drugs. You also don't have to watch her die in the bathtub. Anybody who didn't want to go see the movie thinking that it was going to end on that note, they end with her performance on Oprah and then do the old and then what happened kind of, uh, you know, credits afterwards. I also wanted to mention that Stanley Tucci as her manager is such a high point. He actually kind of strikes the same note that he did as Julia Child's husband and Julia and Julia, where you just see just this really positive force, you know, behind the talented person. Mike, how did you like Stanley Tucci? This was the thing I liked best in the whole film, actually. Stanley Tucci gives a wonderful performance as Clive Davis. Clive Davis was the Arista Records producer and, and mogul who really launched Whitney Houston. He created her in a sense, and she always acknowledged that. He was the one who shaped the career, and they really cared for each other. Tucci is totally convincing as, as Clive Davis. And to one of your earlier points, this movie is very careful to preserve its PG-13 rating. 
the Whitney Houston estate authorized this film. So it's sanctioned that way. And moreover, Clive Davis, you know, is the producer of the film we're watching. So not only did he produce Whitney Houston's career, he produced the film we're watching now. And so not surprisingly, Clive Davis as a character in the film is sympathetic. But, you know, the performance is absolutely terrific by Stanley Tucci. He should get an Oscar nomination for that performance. He really he really nails it. And Marie, to the point you were making there, the film doesn't shy away from her sexual history. It doesn't shy away from her drug use and so on. But it's not like pounding it in, into you. In other words, it's there, but oftentimes sort of in the background. So you don't really see uh, her taking drugs to any extent. It's sort of like set up for it, but not any grueling scene where she's totally in a drug haze. And I think in some ways the film is being very careful there because, again, the family is authorizing it. Clive Davis is producing it. I think they're somewhat protective that way. I can imagine another filmmaker making it an R-rated film and not just in terms of language. I mean, in terms of really showing you the degradation that would have been involved with all the, the, the drinking and drug taking and abuse from Bobby Brown and so on. This film, it's there, but it's, I don't want to say soft pedal because it's definitely there, uh, but but they pull back. Did you notice that Marie watching it? Like they'll cut away suddenly to something else. And it's like, okay, the point's made. We don't need to wallow in it. You know, cut away is, is what I have down as the main drawback. There's so much to cover with her, you know, early life, you know, the breaking into the business, the fame, the Bobby Brown saga, the drugs, that it sometimes just feels like this mad gallop through her life where you don't really get a lot of detail. There is a mention of her going to rehab and then there's a scene of her swimming in a pool and that's all you get about the rehab. Just zooming past things so quickly that you don't really, sometimes it doesn't even get a chance to really register what you yeah. just saw. That's why it's a really good film, but it's not a great film. And if it were a great film, it would need to really give you more of what Marie's just indicated. Marie, namely, like for instance, when she goes into rehab, that's such a big deal, right, in her life. And yet in the film, it, rehab seems to consist of swimming laps in the pool, <laughs> you, you know, and it's just like, oh, come on, that, that is soft pedaling there. And that's a case, again, where, where the director, Casey Lemons, and, and the producer and others, they just they downplay some of the really rough material. And, and it just and what happens in a conventional biopic is exactly what you've identified. You hit the high points in the life, right? Literally high points. You, you hit you hit those points. And then sometimes it's like a mad dash, as you put it, like we got to do this and this and this. And it doesn't really delve as deeply as it could. So yes, it's it's mildly disappointing at that level. But you know what? Once she starts singing, all is forgiven. That is true, because at the end of the day, it was all about that amazing voice. And you do get scenes of how dedicated she was to singing, to wanting to do her own music, to being the best at what she did. That all comes through, and it, and it does make it a really fun movie to go see, especially with a group of friends. But that brings us to the end of this episode. Don't forget to check out our other podcasts at dragondigitalradio.podbean.com and also under Dragon Digital Radio on Pandora and Spotify. And we will see you next time at the movies. See you then. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.